You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Please remain standing for our sermon reading this morning. It comes from the book of Joel, chapter 2, starting in um, verse 11. The Lord makes his voice heard in the presence of his army. His camp is very large. Those who carry out his command are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. And he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, so you can offer grain and wine to the Lord your God. Blow the horn in Zion, announce a sacred fast, proclaim an assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the aged, gather the infants, even babies nursing at the breast. Let the groom leave his bedroom and the bride her honeymoon chamber. Let the priests and the Lord ministers weep between the porticos and the altar, Let them say, Have pity on your people, Lord, and do not make your inheritance a a disgrace, an object of scorn among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, Where is their God? And then down in uh, verse 28. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For, those w- for there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And the Lord promised among the survivors, the Lord calls. This is God's word. Well, good morning, King's Cross. What a pleasure to see everyone back from a Labor Day weekend last week. I'm sure everyone's had a good time because there were a few of us here and we enjoyed our time together. But, uh, but we were in Hosea last week and we're continuing in the Book of the Twelve, which is our series through the Minor Prophets, one in which um, we've been very excited about jumping into. And as we've as I, mis- I know myself, have dove in further, have just been overwhelmed by the story, the message that the minor prophets are providing for us. Last week in Hosea, the, the gracious, kind, compassionate love, the pursuit, the redemption of God was evident throughout the story in Hosea. And this week we are diving into Joel, which, though a much shorter prophet, is still packed full. Um, full of so much. There's a plague, there's, there's war, there's fighting, there's love, there's forgiveness, there's redemption, and we get to share all of that this morning. And I ask and invite you to pray along with me as we dive into Joel, that uh, God might be edified and the Spirit might teach us. So pray with me. Father, in your kindness this morning, we're thankful for the opportunity to open up your word. And God, I trust that you have prepared my heart as we've as I've walked through this message Lord, so much so that I pray that you would be glorified and upheld, that Jesus would be made much of this morning, and that we would see in the midst of a 
terrifying and devastating and painful world that there is hope and redemption found in you alone. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you do have your Bibles, your apps with you, please turn to Joel. Uh, we're not going to read explicitly through every aspect of this, but I'm going to touch quite a bit because um, there is a lot happening in Joel. And we want to start off with finding out and looking at Joel himself. Out of the gate, I'm going to go Joel 1.1. 1, 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. That's all we get about Joel. That's all we get. We don't know much else about Joel. Um, he's unique in the prophets that he does not give us any explicit indication of when he's writing. He's not talking about any kings that are in power. He's not talking about any real uh, explicit historical events that scholars put their finger on. We only have a ballpark that many scholars range on this work being from 900 to 300 BC, based on all kinds of assumptions. What is clearly evident is he is well-versed in the temple. He's well-versed in, in other texts of scripture. And there's so many references that we find from him to other passages. And, Exodus and um, in the law and the prophets and and Jeremiah is almost like an expansion on what Joel writes about and so we see that if you look at the sheet if you do have that and have looked at it we're putting it based on the ESV or CSB study Bible I don't know which I referenced for that one but where they ballparked it around the 500s BC just based on some of the evidences in the text Joel also does not call out any specific sin by name like he doesn't really say, because of this, you're in trouble, Judah. It's written to Judah, the southern kingdom, but he doesn't call out anything. He just kind of assumes that everybody knows that they haven't been living correctly before Yahweh. He's like, you guys know what's up. I, I mean, it's not really a whole lot unlike a young married couple fight, right? Where one of you gets mad about something and the other one knows that they're mad. And they're kind of like, hey, what are you mad about? And like, well, I'm not going to tell you if you don't know. And then when you get older and you've been married for a while, you do know what you did. <laughs> Joel just assumes you know that Judah knows what's happened. There are some indicators within the text, and we'll look at that a little bit more. But that's not without effect for us readers, because what it doesn't allow us to do is to look at some particular thing that Judah's guilty of and say, oh, that's not me. Instead, it's an overwhelming image of a people who are supposed to be bearing God's name, living waywardly and following after other gods in some way. And judgment comes. Joel is focused on convincing us of the devastating effects of sin. And then he gifts us with ultimate hope in Yahweh's final conquest. That, that he destroys Satan, sin, and death and all the evil of the world. But he sets us up by starting with the present physical turmoil that we face within our time and space. That we see right around us the devastating effects of sin. It's not, uh, it's providential, if you will, that tomorrow is actually September 11th. Today is September 10th, if you didn't already know that. I, this morning, was reminded. <laughs> And it seems like just yesterday, yet it was so much farther back than it should be. 22 years ago? Yet it was, a, it was an event for the time in history of the United States which really impacted the fabric of our lives day to day. 
devastating. We saw the effects of sin and evil up close and in our face and our mortality. That so many people went to work that morning expecting like every other day to do their job and come home to their family and their friends and to do something and have plans for the weekend or whatever might be going on. And that all came tumbling down, literally, in what was a moment of time. He points Judah in this passage to a recent locust plague that, that has left their land in shambles. But he doesn't leave them there because he declares that this is only a precursor to further judgment. That's how he connects it, judgment. He's not letting up. And guys, this morning, I don't think we should either. Sin has devastating effects and has consequences. And Joel's message is as important for us today as it was for Israel. Like they, they were enjoying a period of abundance and prosperity and they forgot the one who gives every good thing. They were indulging themselves in all the world had to offer and they were giving their love and devotion to every false hope and idol around them rather than God himself. From Joel's perspective, the devastating judgment of locusts was actually a gift. It was a gracious attempt to snap them back to God. A reality check, if you will, that they had enjoyed such abundance and they were going down a path of destruction. Sin brings devastating consequences in this world, but God is a refuge for everyone who trusts him. In good times and in bad, in trials and tribulation or abundance, God's ultimate declaration to all of us is the same declaration that he gives in Joel 2.12, to turn to him with all our heart. So let's continue in Joel. What does he have to share? Well, first he points out, as we've already started to mention, that sin brings devastating consequences. Joel 1, starting verse 2, Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your day or in the days of your ancestors? Tell your children about it, and let your children tell their children, and their children the next generation. What the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. And what the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. There is nothing left, guys. Like he's, po he's pointing out, look, you guys are gonna remember this. You need to tell your children about this. You need to look at what happened because this is devastating. And I don't think we have the proper context for what locusts actually do. I mean, this swarm that he's describing is not too much unlike some things we actually have seen in the history of America. It's a fascinating it's a, it's a fascinating rabbit hole if you like search on the internet and go down it, but we're not going to go too far. But over into the 1700s and 1800s, we have some amazing descriptions of locusts in the American Midwest. The Rocky Mountain locust is actually what it's called. And these are nasty. Essentially, they're the same thing as grasshoppers. But when grasshoppers get together in a big cloud and they just start migrating and eating everything, that's a plague of locusts. Can you imagine? You guys like grasshoppers? Anybody enjoy those? They, we see them sporadically. But when they come together, let me just tell you a little about the impact they have. Because even though we have several occasions where this happens in the, in, in out in the Midwest, and we have some pictures of some of this, in July 20th to July 30th of 1874, there was a plague of locusts that was recorded over the prairie that covered near 200,000 square miles. That's approximately twice the size of Colorado. Okay? Contained at least estimated 12 and, a half, 12 and a half trillion individual locusts. And the approximate weight, because people like doing math, 
was somewhere in the 27 and a half million tons of bugs. All right? You guys might be familiar with Laura Ingalls Wilder. All right? She talks about this. She wrote on the banks of Plum Creek, she said the cloud was hailing grasshoppers. The cloud was grasshoppers. Their bodies hid the sun and made darkness. Their thin, large uh, wings gleamed and glittered. They, some people said it looked like snow coming through because of the flickering of the sun. The rasping whirring of their wings filled the whole air and they hit the ground and the house with the noise of a hailstorm. Right? Listen to this. In many cases, the drinking water was about the only thing farmers could save. The swarms landed on houses, fields, and trees. The skies would clear, but that's when the devastation actually began. Like they're coming down like a scary, right? Like it feels like Independence Day. I feel like that old movie, right? Clouds good and dark, right? But it's, it's locusts. When they land though, they, they scoured the fields of crops, the trees of leaves, every blade of grass, the wool off sheep, the harnesses off horses, the paint off wagons, the handles off pitchforks. One woman even said they ate the dress off her back. They feasted for days. It says they washed, in, they washed against fences and waves piling a foot or more deep. They devoured clothes, quilts. Farm hands would try to throw over their vegetable gardens. They'd eat through them and eat the vegetables. Livestock, fun fact, apparently they didn't like peas. They're not alone, I guess. There's a lot of people who don't like those. Livestock would feast on the locusts. They felt it was a heyday. And farm families would kill as many as they could by building bonfires, but the swarms would eventually just smother out the fire. Right? There were just too many for them to make a dent. The locusts ate crops, grass, trees, clothing, leather, dead animals, even each other. And one farmer is quoted as to say that they ate everything but the mortgage. <laughs> the number of insect bodies on the ground became so great, they literally stopped railroad traffic. Like the tracks around Colorado Springs were so slick with locusts, the train wheels couldn't roll over them. Bugs. The Rocky Mountain locusts caused more than $200 million in damage to Western agriculture in the 1870s, equivalent to over $100 billion today. And many farms never recovered. There's actually a, a contemporary account from the St. Louis Republican, a paper at the time that painted this picture. They said that we have seen within the past week families which had not a meal of victuals in their house, families that had nothing to eat save what the neighbors gave them, and what game could be caught in a trap since last fall. In one case, a family of six died within six days of each other from the want of food to keep the body and soul together. From present indications, the future four months will make many graves marked with a simple piece of wood with the inscription, starved to death, painted on it. Locust is what Joel goes to. The judgment of God, that they were devastated. Now, does this provide some context when he says what the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten, and what the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Judah has nothing. And Joel, under the inspiration of God, comes and says, this is judgment. I'm not connecting directly between 
Uh, I'm not saying 9-11. I'm making a declaration, which some have done and said, this is God's judgment on the land. But what I'm saying that Joel is telling that to Judah in this instance. That he is saying, in, in a way, this is a wake-up call. That sin has, and inevitably, that even like 9-11, that, there's, that is the result and overflow and consequences of sin in the world we live in. It's a reminder of brokenness all around us. He tells them, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you wine drinkers, because of the sweet wine, for it has been taken from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion and its fangs of a lioness. He's talking about locusts. And he's saying, it's like an army coming in and taking you out. All your sweet wine you're enjoying. He says, wake up, you drunkards, which is an indication of their overindulgence. That's what he's referring to. You are just fat with the land, and God is saying, wake up. Wake up. He makes several references here to their overindulgence first and their prosperity. He talks about the locusts as an invading army that white and, and, and wipes them out. He talks about the locusts like hungry lions destroying every indicator of abundance and peace through this passage, that the grapevine destroyed, the fig trees destroyed, the pomegranates destroyed, the date palm, the apple tree, everything's gone. But more than that, he ends with a reminder that their ability to worship God is also hindered. It's not only that everything else is dried up, but now they can't even do grain and drink offerings because they have nothing to turn around and offer back to the Lord. Do you feel the hopelessness of their situation? That there is nothing left. And he calls them in verse 13 of this passage for the, for the priests who dress in sackcloth and lament, you ministers of the altar. Come and spend the night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God, because grain and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Take and announce a sacred fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the residents of the land of the house of the Lord and your God. Cry out to the Lord. What is it that that Joel is encouraging the people to do in the midst of devastating circumstances, cry out to God. Like, he, he's, he's not explicitly telling them about their sin because listen, you and I, we are in a situation that's either of our own consequence of our life, a sin that maybe we have, create, we have been ourselves guilty of, or otherwise, we're not, we don't have to be told. I, I, I usually don't need to be told. Joel is just simply telling the people to turn to the Lord. And why does he do that? He says, because in the midst of this, even if it's not your responsibility, even if it's not something you have done, within this land, all this devastation, God's your only hope. And he turns their attention out of this to something called the day of the Lord. He says in verse 15, woe because of that day, for the day of the Lord is near and will come to devastation from the Almighty. That, that God himself is the one that visits ultimate devastation. Actually, it's a play on words. It's, it's pretty uh, poetic, if you will, or artistic. The two words he puts together is shod for devastation and Shaddai, almighty. That he's like, in some way in America, we, or in our English language, not America, but English language, we might say something like the shattering from Shaddai will surely come. Like he's being artistic. He's trying to, it's a hook Shad Shaddai. That the Almighty, the All-Powerful is bringing devastation and judgment. 
And rightfully so, because what Joel is talking about as he turns from the tragedy to point to the day of the Lord is something that throughout the scripture is ultimately the time when Yahweh will punish and restore the whole world. That's what the day of the Lord is. That, that he will make all things right. And even if they're not acknowledging God and they're looking at the world around them, they have to acknowledge that everything is broken. I mean, they might be able to medicate themselves with any number of wine or indulgences, but in reality, they know that the world they live in is broken. And the occasion of this locus is only an opportunity for Joel to remind them of that. See, inside of this, the day of the Lord is also used within Scripture to point to other times throughout periodic days that clarify and anticipate the ultimate day of the Lord. And that's what he's doing. The reminder that sin has consequences and that God does not leave sin unpunished. Like that, there's, that there is ultimately a final judgment. That, that reminding us of God's judgment of sin, and Joel says that this devastating loss is really only a precursor to that. And he says, if you don't continue and change your ways, that there's a coming army that's coming. He also moves on from that. That you look at this locust and they came in and wiped you out, but wait, there's more. This is, this, this is not like the special deal that you're wanting to hear, right? Like you hear, like, listen, here's all the great benefits of our product, but wait, there's more. No, for this, it's like, hey, there's devastation and locusts in the land, but wait, there's more. He's telling them, if you don't turn, that there are some greater spiritual consequences. That the weight of sin should rest on you because it's not good for you, it's not good for the world that God's made. He says in Joel 2, starting in verse 1, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the residents of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it's near. It's, it's, remember when I said that the locust plague is a grace? See, this is where God is trying to remind us that the world we see in front of us, the physical world, the, the interrelationships that we have, the right and wrong that we try to navigate in our flesh is not all that is. That there's something God is doing that's greater. The trumpet here is more like an air raid horn. We probably have heard, have you heard some recordings from like Ukraine where they're blowing off the air raid horns from time to time. We hear this on the news all the time. And for Jerusalem, you would have somebody, a watchman on the wall of the city who would see a raiding army coming and would blow the trumpet. Wake up! I mean, if you're getting like fans of like old shows and movies, Lord of the Rings type stuff like that, right? you're going to see people blowing some horns to let folks know what's up, right? But what's important to notice about this is he doesn't say blow it from the wall. He says blow the trumpet in Zion. Like he goes directly to the holy mountain. Like this is a spiritual crisis. Like, like your sin is destroying you and everything I've made about this world. And it requires my judgment. He says, all the residents should tremble because God is coming and he's bringing a devastating army. Look at the rest of the passage that follows after Joel in verse chapter 2. It continues to talk about the way in which the army will come through in the same way that the locusts have come through. And they're going to not leave anything unturned. They're going to destroy. They're going to wreck. They're going to 
They're going to blow it up, if you will. They're not going to leave anything that the locust has not, has not touched because God is bringing judgment. And the most important thing I can point to for us, even as we consider that, that sin requires God's judgment, is that through it all, God is also drawing and saving. God is drawing and saving. Hold on, let me... My notes. Okay. I really didn't know how to put this into words. And, and I think this is so important for us. And this is super hard. Uh, you know, Romans, Paul tells us that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And what Joel is similarly showing us that in this devastating locust call, it's a grace because it's trying to wake up his people. And in the judgment that's coming, that it's God who's leading the charge. Look at this. The Lord makes his voice heard in the presence of his army. The army that's coming to destroy Judah is God's army. His camp is very large, and those who carry out his commands are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful who can endure it? Here's, here's, here's the thing we have to remember. That suffering and tragedy can be the result of our sin personally or the result of others' sin. It's true. Like, like, like here, this locust hits, and I will bet you there's some people in Judah who are actually worshiping Yahweh, but they still lose everything. And here, the locust hits, and there's some people who are dead on the worst offenders. But everybody loses everything. Jesus pushes back against the idea of this kind of surgical judgment, and Joel expands on this and goes and shows a corporate judgment that hits the land because sin is that devastating. There is no, my sin doesn't affect anybody else. And what I want us to consider is that even in the midst of this, sometimes our suffering is not a direct result of something we did. But even in every tragedy we experience, just like in Joel, God is continuing to work to draw and to save people. That's really hard. Like, like I want to live by the kind of gospel that says, when I'm doing everything right, my life is amazing. I do. Please bring me that one. I want to believe it. I want to name it and claim it. It's mine. Like, I got no problems. I feel like I'm 20 and things don't hurt. <laughs> right? That money's just pouring into my house. We can do whatever we want. That like mentally and emotionally, I'm stable. And you guys know that's not true. <laughs> I want to believe that. But what God wants us to believe more than that is even when tragedy befalls us, he is good and he is at work. Because as he's leading this army, what is it that we see in verse 12 that he's asking people to do? Even now, 
this is the Lord's decoration. Turn to me with all your hearts, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. Why is Joel confident this is the right move? For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. And this tragedy is meant to draw people back to God in, in Judah. And like a really hard saying is that sometimes our tragedy is being used by God to draw people to him. Like that is hard. I've shared stories of, of friends that I know who have gone into the hospital thinking they just had a stomach ache and found out they had weeks to live with cancer, stomach cancer. And the amount of joy they exuded was unspeakable and unexplainable apart from Christ. And then the number of people on their hospital floor who heard the testimony of God's grace in their life because even in the midst of that kind of suffering, they were willing to extol God and Christ as the only hope and way of life. And when tragedy befalls us like we see in Joel, we have a choice to look at those circumstances and to consider whether or not we are going to turn and love and trust God further and more, or we are going to use that as occasion that many do to judge and, 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 and judge and cry out to God for his injustice and to accuse him of injustice. See, even in the midst of everything that's happening here, Second Peter echoes the way that God is at work and the encouragement for our hearts. When he talks to people in Second Peter chapter 3, Peter reminds a group of people that are under real persecution. And what is his word to them? He reminds them this, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting what? Any to perish, but all to come to repentance. What is he waiting on? That he would not have any perish. And then Peter continues, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Every evil in this world is a reminder that we live in a broken world. And every tragedy that befalls the people around us is an opportunity that, for us to point to the hope that's found in Christ. And as Joel calls, it's a place where we can call others and be reminded ourselves to repent and pray. Because God's people, whenever tragedy befalls them, first look to themselves. Not to, not to blame others. Not to, not to shift. This is, this is what we were talking about 9-11, but also even more pressing and close. We look at 2020. Boy, that was a storm, wasn't it? That whole year. I don't even remember it. You know, we're illness and sickness. I lost family and friends. Way too young. Younger cousins passed away. 
And then we saw people rise up in anger and hatred against another. It was always somebody else's fault. You're a masker, you're not. You're a vacciner, you're not. And God's people were right in the middle. Well, I use this word on purpose. People that claim Christ's name were right in the middle of it. People who claim to represent Christ yet really marred in the political turmoil of this world. Hmm. Were all Israel equally guilty? Probably not. Were some of them still worshiping Yahweh? Probably. Did all of them suffer tragedy? Yes. But God's people look first to themselves and they cry out to God. He calls for prayer, for fasting. When is that our first response? For weeping. Our dependence on God himself. That's what prayer is. I think we can always say, and I'll always say, my prayer life is not what it should be. But Paul reminds us and continues to remind us, be always in prayer. He's always with you. He's present. And sin is devastating and destructive, but God is working even in the midst of tragedy to call and draw people to himself. And God saves everyone who calls on him. God saves everyone who calls on him. Look at Joel chapter two, verse 18. The Lord became jealous for his lamb. How did he respond? How did he respond when they wept, when they prayed, when they fasted? It says he became jealous for his land and he spared his people. The Lord answered his people. Look, I'm about to send you grain, new wine, fresh oil. You will be satiated and I will no longer make you a disgrace among the nation. What does God do? How does he save everyone who calls on him? He provides for us. Again, again I'm, I'm not declaring this over your life as a physical provision of God is always gonna be way above and beyond your daily needs, but I will tell you that you can trust God to provide for you. How does he do that? He tells them, We're gonna, I'm gonna meet your needs. I'm gonna meet you there. I'm gonna spare you and I'm gonna provide for you. But also he goes beyond that. Not only am I gonna provide for you, I'm gonna pour out my spirit on you. We read this earlier in Acts where Peter quotes this exact passage. After this, verse 28, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. And then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams. Your young men will see visions. And I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And there will be an escape from those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Peter talks about this passage because in Acts, we see what is the beginning of this end. We see that God provides for his people not only in ways that we can trust him physically, but he pours out his spirit for us to guide us within us. Like, like one of the biggest things I struggle with is, is making choices and living my life as a believer and trying to do the right thing. And God says, you don't have to do it on your own. He gives you his spirit. Because we saw in Acts, as we went through that series, that the Spirit of God is what led his people. 
right? He's pointing Joel to a future when God is going to make a way that he can actually fill his people with his spirit. Moses, way back in the day, saw God in the different, face to face. It says he was a prophet unlike anybody else. And everybody else said, wow, I wish that I could talk to God like that. He was like, I wish you could too. Because he bore the burden of the entire nation. Like he talked directly to God and had to bring it to them. Later, we see throughout this, like these prophets, that God continues to work and speak through specific people because there's specific opportunity and ways in which he's working. But in the future, which we now live in, because Acts happened already, his spirit is poured out on his church. In Christ. Like Christ made a way that God has won the decisive battle against Satan, sin, and death and allowed him to be able to place his spirit in you and me, believer. We have his spirit. We don't have to rely on our own self, but we can rely on him to guide us. That he has in Christ crushed the enemy and he guides his people. And, and here's the deal. Just like we've read in other passages, he does not leave the enemy unpunished because God will also make all things right. Look at the rest of Joel in verse three. I mean, sorry, chapter three, verse one. He judges the nations for what they've done. Remember, sin is devastating and has effects on the entire world. He calls everyone and says, I will save all who call on my name. And then he tells them, but I will also bring judgment ultimately for those who don't. Yet in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortune of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and take them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them there because of my people, my inheritance, Israel. The nations have scattered the Israelites in foreign countries and divided up their land. They cast lots for my people. They bartered a boy for a prostitute and sold a girl for wine to drink. And also Tyre, Sidon, and all the territories of Philistia what are you to me? Are you paying me back or trying to get even with me? I will quickly bring retribution on your heads. For you took my silver and gold, carried my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks to remove them far from their own territory. Look, I am about to rouse them up from their place where you sold them. I will bring retribution on your heads. I will sell your sons and your daughters to the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabians to a distant nation for the Lord has spoken. This is like not loving, happy, set with you, Jesus, God kind of like language here. This is anger. He's still pouring out his judgment on those who are destroying his people. It, and while we can look at this, like he specifically calls out Tyre and Sidon, and he makes references to selling people into slavery. Like literally, these countries were, are noted for being rather, um, well, aggressive, let's say. They're taking God's people and taking slaves out of them. Really, in a really underhanded way to try to weaken them. Right? If, if all of your children are not able to grow up in your land and rather just sent off to other places, your population has some issues. And so they are dealing this way treacherously with God's people. And he says, I'm not having it. I'm bringing my people back. 
And, and what I want us to remember, remember I said this earlier, that this is physically in the real world something that's happening, but there's also indication that God is talking ultimately about his rule, his judgment, and his rod in heaven and in earth. Like, all things. If you haven't gotten that from being with us week after week, if you want to go back and other, any times we've talked about this, like, there's a spiritual reality that God is making right to. And the reason I say that this points to that is because of the reference to Tyre and the reference to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Tyre comes up elsewhere as uh, a king of the king of Tyre, where he's he's talked about in Ezekiel 28 as being very prideful and arrogant and walking about like he's something special. But then there's a language change in Ezekiel that people who scholars who read this say this looks like he's actually talking about Lucifer. Like, like, like his pride made him want to rise up. It's almost like the people in this world that are against God and his people are being empowered and pursued and guided and led and influenced by others. Specifically in Ezekiel, he would say that Lucifer, the angel of light, is at work. And God in Joel is saying, I'm crushing all of you. Like, I'm excited about that idea. Like with that is not that I want to see death and destruction because God has raised out, he's laid out his hand to people to come to him, but that God in here is saying, I am going to make all things right. Like sin and, and evil doesn't rule anymore. He says, proclaim among the late nations, prepare for holy war, rouse the warriors, let all the men of war advance. He literally invites us to holy war. Beat the plows into swords and your pruning knives into spears. Let even the weakling say, I am a warrior. Come quickly, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves. Bring down your warriors there, Lord. Joel is asking God himself to come and bring his warriors down to fight, his heavenly warriors. Let the nations be roused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit down to judge all the surrounding nations. Swing the sickle because the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes because the wine press is full. The wine vats overflow because the wickedness of the nations is extreme. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will cease their shining. The Lord will roar from Zion and make his voice heard from Jerusalem. Heaven and earth will shake. Do you see the language of what God's doing? Of the way he's working? All of this points to another passage in the psalm. In the psalm of chapter, uh, verse, I'm sorry, Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, where, where God says he puts his king on the throne. And he talks about the surrounding nations raging and the people's plotting in vain and the kings of the earth taking their stand and the rulers conspiring together against the Lord and his anointed one. Where they're literally saying, let's tear off these chains and throw their ropes off of us, saying that we don't care what God wants and we're rebelling. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. He speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Why? Because I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. That's Psalm 2. And Joel tells us the Lord roar from Zion. He establishes his kingdom. This, guys, this is, this is Jesus. Like when we say things like Jesus is king, this is his dominion and throne being established. 
This is him looking at the world around and saying, no longer will you wander off and to do whatever you want to do. I will make things right in the world which God has made. And he's inviting us. He's inviting us to make war on sin in our own lives. He says, turn to the Lord with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear your hearts and return to the Lord. Friends, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, we can't take sin lightly. Joel won't let us. It's destructive. It's powerful. It's, it's devastating. Like if we walk through life thinking that's, it, you know what, it's I, just a little sin I got going on here. This is just a little disobedience. This is a ch- sin with knowledge is mortally deadly. Like God will continue to expose sin in your life and guide and teach you, but to willfully disobey and walk away from God and not turn your heart to him is destructive. And so we make war on sin in our own lives. We tear our hearts, as Joel says, and return to the Lord. Not just making a show on the outside, changing our clothes, right? Putting on church clothes to look right, but actually changing from the inside where the Spirit of God is promised promised to us. And we also join in the holy war for souls. We pray, we weep, we fast for souls. We make disciples. We, we point people to the one who rules and reigns because that's where the hope is found. And look at the language of this last passage of Joel. The fields are ready for harvest. That's exactly what he told his disciples. The day of the Lord is at hand, friends. The shattering of Shaddai will surely come. But our encouragement is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord in that day will be saved. He's a good God and he can be trusted. Even in tragedy and travesty and destruction and devastation, God is good. My call to all of you is the same as Joel. Turn to him. Trust in God. Look to the mountain of Zion where the king rules and reigns and know that even in our darkest days that there is hope at the foot of the cross. And let's call all other people to that place where hope is found in him.